massage parlors he owned across Europe and the United States. Few slaves lasted more than two or three years. By then they had repaid the cost of their purchase, transport, and pitifully meager upkeep hundreds of times over, and there were always more, countless thousands more. Slavery was crime's growth industry, its profits rapidly catching up with those to be made from illicit weapons and drugs. In some ways, the business model was far smarter. You could only sell a gun or a gram of cocaine once. You could sell a sex slave ten times a night. But easy money bred tough competition. Vissar lived in a permanent state of professional paranoia, constantly on the lookout for enemies, alert to every possible threat to his position, whether real or imagined. He'd been taking a break on his 180-foot yacht, cruising the Dalmatian coast of Croatia with his family, when he heard that one of his senior lieutenants, Ergon Ali, had been trying to cut a deal with a rival boss. The information was false, planted to deceive, but it had the desired effect. Vissar sent a four-man team to the Berlin strip club that served as Ali's base. They knocked Ali unconscious with the butt of a Mossberg pump-action shotgun, bundled him into the trunk of an S-class Mercedes, shot him full of heroin, and hit the autobahn south. Fourteen hours later, they arrived in Split, the Croatian seaside town that had once been the favoured summer resort of the emperors of Rome. Vissar's men topped up Ali's dose to keep him quiet, then drove their murk onto the ferry to the island of Hvar, sticking it next to a camper van filled with Australian students on a round Europe tour. They spent the three-hour voyage in the ferry bar, matching the Aussies beer for beer. The only other occupant of the bar was sitting in the corner, a bearded man in a battered Panama hat with a pair of binoculars around his neck, eking out a pot of tea and studiously consulting a book about bird-watching. When Vissar's men reached the villa, they dumped Ergon Ali, bound and gagged, in the cellar. They did not want to waste their boss's time, so they spent the rest of the night and all the next day beating, electrocuting, and half-drowning the man who had once been their friend. Only when they felt that Ali was about to crack did they call Skender Visar to inform him that everything had been prepared for his arrival. By the time Visar hung up, the blades on his helicopter had already started to turn. He was on his way to apply the finishing touches to Ergon Ali's interrogation, and Samuel Carver, bird-watching now far from his mind, was waiting for him. Carver crouched in the shadows to the side of the helipad. Vissar and his bodyguard had already walked up to the main house where Ergon Ali was awaiting his fate. The pilot stayed behind for a few minutes to shut down and check his aircraft. Then he too made his way up the path. Carver waited until he was sure that the area was deserted, then slipped across the pad to the silent machine. The Bell 206B3 is the workhorse of the skies, first put into service in 1967 and barely changed since. The rear of the aircraft consists of a long tail boom, at the end of which sit the tail rotor and the vertical stabilizer, which sticks out above and below the boom, like the angled fins of a shark. This stabilizer is attached to the rest of the helicopter by four bolts, arranged in a rectangle. Carver put on his gloves, 
took an adjustable wrench out of his second pouch and removed the bottom two bolts. Then he used a mini-saw to cut halfway through each one, making them significantly weaker. He screwed them back into the housing, taking extreme care not to snap them in two. Next, he unscrewed the top pair of bolts, exactly as before, but this time he cut right through them, up by the head. He put the shafts back into his thigh pouch, then used tiny blobs of blue tack to stick the heads of the bolts back on the vertical stabilizer, exactly where they had been before. An inch-by-inch inch inspection of the helicopter would reveal what Carver had done, but his work would certainly pass a tired pilot's cursory pre-takeoff check. He ran through the whole procedure one more time in his mind, making sure he had done everything that was required, and then made his way back to the jetty. By the time the guard woke from his slumber,